Our Father, we're thankful again for the salvation that we enjoy through the person of the Lord Jesus Christ. And we, because of His uh, meritorious work on our behalf, the Holy Spirit has been sent as our teacher. And we ask that He would open our hearts tonight to a very central truth in our faith, that we would be able to have clear thinking, to be able to appreciate, for we know that You have created us in Your image, and that therefore there's an analogy between us and between, between us and you, and we can utilize that in order to understand you better. For we ask this in Christ's name. Amen. Last week, we finished the second chapter of the notes that dealt with the birth of Christ and the hypostatic union. And we said there were some practical results that follow uh, from the doctrine of the hypostatic union is truth. And the fourth thing that followed was that, and I would want to turn to Colossians chapter 2, verse 8 tonight, um, a very basic thing follows once the full deity of Christ um, is, mani- is uh, appreciated. <clears throat> this is a verse that has been woefully neglected over the centuries of church history. It's a truth that Paul pointed out to the Colossians centuries ago. And very few Christians actually have followed up on this. Uh, it's a verse just a sort of, everybody reads it and goes on, doesn't give it much thought. But it's a very important one. Paul says, um, See to it that no one takes you captive through philosophy and empty deception. According to the tradition of men, according to the elementary principles of the world, rather than according to Christ. Now, in that sentence, he sets two things over against each other. He says we have a choice. We can begin, we can follow a philosophy that is according to. It's kata, a Greek preposition, meaning according to a standard. We can believe, we can have our viewpoint, we can have our basic belief system according, he says, to the tradition of men, according, in this comma there, this apposition, according to the elementary principles of the world. And the word he uses, stoichia, is a word that is used, was used centuries before Paul, by Greek philosophers. And they had, they had something very special in mind by this stokia. What they had in mind were the basic elements and building blocks of the universe. And does anybody remember what the Greeks thought the universe came from? One of them was earth, fire, water, air. Now, those are four very common elements that the Greeks thought about we ought to be careful before we laugh at that. Because if you think of what these four elements are, fire, air, water, and earth, what does that look like? Corresponds to what in our modern scientific terms? It's the three phases, the three states of matter. Liquid, gas, and solid. And the fire is energy. So it really wasn't too off base. And today, we are taught in our schoolwork the same thing. Think about it. When you, when you were trained in school, where they say everything came from? Atoms, 
energy, all these different things. Those are the basic categories. And then we use those basic categories and build everything from them. Now, Paul says in verse 8, don't be taken captive by that kind of thinking according to the principles of the world rather than according to Christ. What is striking about this verse is that he is contrasting stoichia with Jesus Christ. And we have to stop here and observe the text carefully and ask, why does he do this? Well, how can you contrast earth, fire, water, and air to Jesus Christ? Why is this contrast there? And he's making it a point of orthodoxy. He's saying, let no man be deceived. He says, you have two paths. You have two fundamentally different worldviews. You can build one on this basis, or you can build the other one on that basis. Well, what have we studied now? Now that we've gone through the last four or five weeks, we talked about the hypostatic union of the Lord Jesus Christ where the Creator and the creature meet in one person. So what he is arguing for is that the basic category that we have to begin with is the Creator-Creature distinction because it's the Creator-Creature distinction that's fundamental to understanding who Jesus Christ is cannot understand who the person of Christ is without understanding the Old Testament creator-creature distinction. Fundamental. The Lord Jesus Christ has a human body made of matter. Moreover, Jesus Christ's human body that's made of matter, it's not a pile of atomic particles that happen to be rearranged in sort of a form. What do we understand if we read Genesis 1 about the image of man? We understand that it's made in God's image. And remember, back three or four years ago on Thursday nights, we made a big point that the image of God in which we are made is not just the immaterial part of man, but that our bodies, fingers, head, ears, that these correspond to what God would look like were he to appear in a finite form. So the human body is not the casual result of a chance-caused evolution. The human body's shape is derivative of the character and being of God himself. Well, that means that form and matter have a different agenda here than they do in here. Here, form and matter are sort of an antagonism to one another, whereas in the person of the Lord Jesus Christ, form and matter fit together in one shape. Well, what we're going to do tonight, and this is a very difficult area that we're going in. And so, if you'll follow in the notes, uh, this first part of the doctrine of the Trinity, the whole doctrine itself, obviously, is difficult. The section of notes that we handed out tonight, we're going to get into a lot of Bible passages about the Trinity. So tired of hearing this stuff about, oh, the Trinity is not taught in the Bible. All that shows is that whoever says it never reads the Bible. It's a self-indictment. But tonight, we want to set things up so that when we come to the text and we look at the biblical verses that have to do with the Trinity, we're asking the right questions, the big questions. Scripture is like a, 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 a wonderfully rich gold mine. And you get out of it as much as you dig. 
and we can come into the cave and pick a few nuggets. But if we really want the good stuff, you have to dig. And the way to dig with the scripture is bring the heavy questions to the text and let the text answer the heavy questions, which means first we have to deal with what are some of the heavy questions. We have to be careful that we word those questions in a scriptural fashion. But what we want to do tonight is turn the tables on what usually happens with this doctrine of the Trinity. Nine times out of ten, when the doctrine of the Trinity is taught, someone will say, but that doesn't make logical sense. You Christians have, a, have an irrationalism in your faith. You have a logical internal contradiction right in the very heart of your faith. How can God be three and how can God be one? And what happens is, is that the non-Christian starts here with his logic machine. And then he wants to subject God to the logic machine. What we're going to do tonight is show you that it's actually the reverse, that the logic machine can't exist without the Trinity. It's exactly the opposite. It's only because we have the Trinity that we have the ability to think logically and in language. So what we want to do is we want to come and on page one, I want to review how the pagan mind works because this is heavy stuff. And if you don't get it, don't worry about it. We'll just go a little bit at a time. Uh, this will not obviously affect the benefit of the scripture verses we're going to have next week and so forth. But for those of you who have banged your head on the wall in this area, and, and I know from conversations some of you have, uh, try to stay with me as I work through this. Because what I am trying to present, um, I was going to have a diagram, my color printer didn't work, so I couldn't get my slide ready for tonight. But what, what I'm trying to show you is actually a truth about the Trinity that wasn't well perceived prior to the 20th century, actually. Um, in the progress of the church, um, the Holy Spirit teaches men, and then the next generation that comes along builds on the shoulders uh, of the previous generation. And in the 20th century, because so many battles were fought in the 1700s and the 1800s over the faith, that fundamentalist Christian thinkers at the turn of the century realized that something needed to be reformed in how we deal with issues of our faith, on how we deal with big questions, because it wasn't being dealt with very skillfully in the 19th century. And out of this came an approach called a presuppositional apologetic, largely developed in Westminster Seminary by Cornelius Van Til, largely a product within the Reformed Calvinist circles. A very powerful insight into Scripture. Cornelius Van Til is not well known. Um, he never really wrote a popular book in his life. No paperbacks. Uh, no Christian publisher published his stuff. Um, the books that he did write were classroom syllabi that people insisted on reforming and finally going out and publishing. He wrote articles, 40 or 50 of them, in some of the Reformed Christian magazines for the Reformed faith. Um, but his background is, I was talking to Dr. Tommy Ice about him, um, Cornelius Van Til 
earned his Ph.D. at Princeton. And he was one of those men who was involved in those era, the day when Princeton was going and the big fundamentalist modernist controversy was around. So he regularly hung out with J. Gresham Machen, who was the guy who wrote the basic text in New Testament Greek. Uh, he was raised with Robert Dick Wilson, who knew 25 Semitic languages. Um, this was the kind of clientele that he, this guy worked with. And he wrote his, he was a brilliant guy. He wanted to be a farmer, actually, in Michigan, a very homespun type guy. But he was very brilliant. God had gifted him in a, in a very interesting way. And so when at Princeton, his teachers encouraged him to go on. And he eventually wrote his Ph.D. dissertation on Immanuel Kant. And Tommy was telling me that that dissertation, that Ph.D. dissertation on Immanuel Kant, was used by the professor of philosophy at Princeton to write the standard text on Immanuel Kant that's still used today, one of the basic texts. So, this guy is not some obscurantist. But what Van Til pointed out to us Christians is that the fundamental question behind all philosophy throughout the centuries has been this question, the question of the one and the many. And we want to show, this is very practical in its results, the one versus the many. The ancient world had a problem with this. The modern world has a problem with this. Politicians have a problem with this. Accountants have a problem with this. Secretaries have a problem with this. This is a problem that permeates all of life. Now, let me try to develop a little bit more. The problem of the one and the many is this. Which is more important? Is it that which unifies, or is it the individual? For example, politically. Is it better to have individual rights or, and, and risk breaking society up into little clubs, gangs, groups, ethnic groups, and so on? Everybody has their rights. Then you lose your unity. So you can go over here and emphasize well, I am an individual and I have my rights and I have the right to liberty and I do this and I do that and this, this individualism. Anybody know the end result of this kind of thinking politically? It begins with the letter A. Anarchy. The other side of the coin is in order to have social order for everybody to work, we are going to have the ultimate authority in the state. And the state will determine what is right and what is wrong. And therefore, the state is the most important and not the individual. And the political label for this begins with T. Totalitarianism. So you have these extremes, and people have fought this battle for ages. Communism came out on which side of the spectrum? The totalitarian side. The libertarian political party in America right now is aiming in this direction. Um, the recently elected governor of Minnesota, uh, reformed on the reform platform, philosophically is tending toward anarchy, libertarian. I'm not saying he's an anarchist, but I'm just saying that the emphasis, Ventura. Okay, so we have these two, two extremes. We've always had them in politics. 
Now, let's take it in another area to see the one and the many. Let's take marriage. Marriage is an institution. You can say the husband and the wife should not lose their individual personalities and identities. Marriage isn't there to crush and erase the individual personality. So the husband has a right and the wives have a right. But if this is made to be the final story, we go to divorce and dissolution of the marriage because the marriage isn't as important as the individuals in the marriage. On the other hand, you can have a strong, quote, marriage, honoring marriage to the point where one or the other or both spouses are totally crushed in their individual expression, their gifts and their use and so forth. You can have the same thing in the family. You can have a family that's a splinter family, or you can have a family that's a total dictatorship and domineered. So I think you can see that in social realm, you have a tendency to the one or the many. And it goes on and on and on. But it's not just in the social realm where this occurs. It occurs in other areas. Let's take a simple case of a secretary or at home, and you have a filing cabinet. And you get all this stuff and material scattered hither and yon, and you say, I want some order in this stuff. So you sit out and you start sorting it out into categories. Put this in this file, this in this file, this in this file. What happens sometimes, though, is that on, you know, this is March, so March, you go through and you spend a week organizing all your stuff in this great filing system. Then you don't pay attention to it until October. And then you wonder, where did I put this? Because that system of organizing the material that brought it all together doesn't somehow fit anymore. It was a bad emphasis on the, on the structure of the filing system. Well, in this illustration, what is the one and what is the many? The many is the stuff that's going into the files, the individual things. And you're trying to organize. Why do you want a filing system, by the way? Let's think about why is there a need for a one in the middle of the many? A filing system is a, is a wonderful illustration of this. Why do we bother to file anything? Because we want to manage it. You can't manage individual marbles rolling all over the place. It's just chaos. So the only way you can manage things is to have it organized. And if you're going to organize it, what do you have to have by way of organizing principles? You've got to have something that makes sense so that it's not just you know, all red marbles, all blue marbles, or something like that. You've got to have something that really means something. So you have to think through how do you do a filing system. Same thing happens in accounting. Accounting, basically, you have all these transactions all over the place. This, that, and the other thing. And you go crazy trying to treat all these little transactions. I mean, the checkbook is a good example. You have a mess if you don't have some way of categorizing these transactions. No way could an investor figure out the value of a business if he couldn't get some idea of, hey, where's the debt? What kind of debt quality is this? What kind of assets does this thing have? Where are the liabilities? And so forth. What are the tax uh, debts and so forth? What's the cash flow in this thing? What are the debt ratios? All these things come out of analysis of the individual transactions. How many of the widgets were sold last week? And so those are the individual things. Now, everybody knows that you can't have a mess, right? That's why we have accountants. That's why we have filing systems. 
That's why we have government to bring social order. So there's got to be something that emphasizes the one, and you'll see that the people who emphasize the one want meaning. They want the big picture. But on the other hand, that can become very oppressive. And so the other tendency is to fly in the opposite direction and say, I want my freedom. I want my rights. We'll put those in quotes because there's an internal contradiction with even that usage. Because if everything is truly individual, then there's no such thing as an abstract right. So the point here is that there's this tendency wherever you look, whatever century you're reading, men have struggled with this issue. Now what I want to do is move on on page three because in page three I want to show that it's even more serious than politics, filing systems, and accounting. This is a problem that is at the nuclear level of our entire way of thinking and knowing. The one and the many has to be solved in order to deal with language and I'm going to hyphenate language. I didn't do this in the notes, but it'll make it maybe clearer. Language dash thinking. Because you cannot think without language. Period. All you can do is feel. All you can do is emote. That's why the more illiterate a group is, and I don't mean literate in the sense of reading, but... Uh, the people in Bible times were illiterate in the sense formally they couldn't read, but they were very literate people. They governed themselves. They thought in terms of absolutes. They had laws. They had rules of evidence. They could uh, discuss large issues. So they were literate in that. That's the general sense of what I mean. They could think. They just didn't go mm, and feel. So thinking requires language. Also involved in this is logic because logic is involved in this. So in order... For us, at the most basic part of our souls to function, we need language and we need logic. Now, here's the issue. And what I'm doing here is I'm building something because the critics like to say the Trinity is a logical contradiction. What I'm going to show you now is that if the Trinity doesn't exist, then there is no language or logic. Language and logic both struggle with the one and the many. Let's take a simple sentence. Um, my dog is a German Shepherd. In that sentence, there's one in the many. What is the individual thing, the many in there, the individual item? My dog. And I'm classifying my dog as part of a class called German Shepherds. Now, in that sentence, I haven't talked about what a German Shepherd is. I've said it's a classification into which my dog fits. I know one German Shepherd. It's the guy that eats food next to my refrigerator. That's my German Shepherd. But I don't know all German Shepherds, do I? Even if I were a breeder and I had seen hundreds and hundreds of German Shepherds, I would still be ultimately dealing with an abstract classification called German Shepherd. And breeders can sometimes argue about where the boundaries are in some of these things. What is a German Shepherd and what isn't? 
How much mongrel gene do you get into this thing before he's a mutt? And he's no longer a German shepherd. Where do you draw the boundary? And there's all kinds of debates over how many mamas and daddies you had after the line and so forth. But the point we're making here is that here is an ordinary sentence that everybody uses every single day and we have to deal with the one and the many. The many is any item, any individual item that we're thinking about. And when we think about any individual item, whether it's a transaction, whether it's an object in our house, or anything else, we have to link that with some sort of class, classification, some sort of property. If we don't, we really don't know it, do we? Think of, think of anything you know. I just picked the animals. But when you go to describe your dog to the friend down the street, how do you describe him? You describe him in terms of, well, he's a German shepherd, he's brown. What are you doing? You're describing him in terms of properties. So you have to have a set of properties out there in order to describe and know him. Or else... We, we just, I have a uh in my house. Oh, it's an uh. Well, come over and see it. Now, until you come over and see an uh, you don't know anything about what uh is. So, if I'm going to tell you what uh is, I have to list a set of properties that you know intuitively exist, that you know about. Now, the point here is that language, in a miraculous way, is daily solving the problem and nobody can explain how it works. The philosophers have struggled with this question, but in practice, life forces the accountant to deal with it. Life forces society to deal with this. Life forces us to think in these terms. We, we just find ourselves thinking this way. Now let's look at logic, which is closely related to this. In order for there to be any logical coherency to thinking, you've got to have, again, properties and classifications. Let's say um, that we have uh, my dog, or let's say, put it this way, all dogs uh, have four legs. And if if we're sloppy in our logic, here's what happens. Um, X has four legs. Now, this is a bad syllogism. Therefore, X is a dog. Now, something's wrong here. It's not true. That's a disorganized and false syllogism. But one of the problems with these syllogisms and why they break down is that words switch meanings in the process of talking about these things. And for there to be a legitimate assertion, not only do they have to be organized in the right way, but there has to be a consistency of usage. If I start talking about dogs, and I have in mind four-feeted creatures, and you use the word D-O-G, and you're referring as a metaphor to something else, we're going to be totally confused in our communication. 
Because when I use the word dog, I'm talking about those four-legged things with tails. When you use the word dog, you might be sarcastically referring to a, a, a car that doesn't work or something. And if we try to think across those boundaries, we've utilized the word DOG differently. Now, what saves us? Aristotle pointed this out centuries and centuries ago. He made the very perceptive statement as a pagan thinker now. Here's, here's Aristotle thinking through Plato, had started to work with this. Aristotle and Plato developed logic and so on. And here's what they come out the conclusion with. And nobody's refuted him. What they basically argued was that you cannot have genuine logic unless you have 100% perfect categories. The moment the category boundaries smear out, your logic starts to leak, as well as your language. Well, that was great. But the problem that Aristotle and Plato found as pagans was that what do you have to have in order to have a genuine, 100% perfect, sharp category? Think about it for a minute. If you think in terms of dog, German Shepherd. Let's just take the German Shepherd illustration. That's a category. Now, breeders can spend their lives working with German Shepherds and still, out there in the fuzzy edge, not know what a German Shepherd is. What kind of knowledge do you have to know to have the perfect knowledge of exactly what a German Shepherd is and what he isn't? You have to go into the DNA and so forth. But what kind of knowledge is required? Omniscience. Exactly. Now, follow us, folks. We're, we're coming to thick stuff here. But here's where the payoff is. Think of what we just said. In order to have language and logic function, you need 100% perfect categories. But who in finite men and human thought can get hold of 100% universal categories? None of us. Because to have 100% universal category, you've got to have what? Omniscience. You've got to know everything in order to classify it in terms of universal classes. Because if you classify it in terms of four German shepherds, and here comes a fifth one, you say, whoops, have to adjust that one. You look at the stock market. Some got computer gurus, they have this model that works great for three years. And then the fourth year, the market, oh, what the heck, we've got to adjust our model. And see, the problem is, a finite person is always subject to the n plus one observation. All knowledge would be contingent. So the, the problem and the dilemma, the one and the many, is simply this. Let's try to phrase this, because this is going to make us appreciate this doctrine of the Trinity that came out of 400 years of church history, that everybody says, oh, that was imported from the Greeks. You're about to see how stupid that statement is. The Greeks said, one and many, and they were smart enough men... Aristotle by to realize that in order to get unity and classification, you've got to be God. G-O-D. You've got to have God-like knowledge to anchor logic and language. Got to. Because you've got to have universal categories that aren't going to go away on Tuesday afternoon. They're going to be valid Tuesday, Wednesday, Thursday, the year 2000, 2010, 3000, 4000, if the Lord tarries. Can't have these things changing or you don't have knowledge. So, the one has got to be divine. 
Now let's look at the other side. The other problem is that you've got to also have an infinite set of observations of the individual things. And you've got to have some idea of what's causing... Suddenly, from here's, here's an object, here comes something else. Here comes like reading the morning newspaper. You get out and open up the newspaper. Well, now what kind of a mess do we have today? So, you have these things coming to you like this. And what the Greeks realized was all you have back of here is the source of these individual things is pure chance. Or they like to call it fate. So now the problem of the many is that you've got all these things coming out of nowhere. And you can't get and can't really know where these things are coming from. They just happen. No, it just happens. These things occur. They pop into your life. They go away. Pop into, new things come popping into your life every day. So, the problem here is that if everything is really chance, what does that do to the one? If you really don't know where the stuff's coming from, how do you know you could ever get a one? How do you know you could ever get a classification going at all? Well, you don't. The one and the many are in a perpetual antagonism to each other on a pagan basis. Finite man is torn between trying to establish all the marbles in a pattern, on one hand, getting the pattern under control, and then on the other hand, once he gets it, it, gets it, it freezes on him, and now he has no freedom. Now he has no, no rights, no individual room to move. So, here's the picture of the unbeliever, going back and forth, back and forth, back and forth. That's human history. In a personal, private way, you can see this in religious circles, including our Christian circles, by a tendency, those people who, in the flesh, when we're not following the Holy Spirit, not filled with the Spirit, not obeying Scripture, not walking by faith, we drift in one of these two directions in our spiritual life. The direction toward the one is characterized by legalism. We're going to establish a principle, whether the God... It leads us to that or not, whether the scriptures say, we've got to have a principle, got to have a principle, going to follow the principle. Come hell or high water, we're going to follow the principle. Don't adapt it to the situation, going to follow the principle. And the problem is, oftentimes the principles are just part of our own personalities. We happen to be more comfortable with this lifestyle, so every, all the other Christians have to fit our principle, whether it's in the scriptures or not. And that's legalism. We have no right to impose some standard outside of the Scripture on other people. Other Christians, we're going to meet people that just grade our souls. But we have to have grace. God has grace. doesn't mean we abandon His standards. But it also means that we're sensitive to these things. Paul deals with this. If you want some good Scripture, Romans 14, 1 Corinthians 8, 9, 10. Those are central patterns. Romans 14, 1 Corinthians 8, 9, 10 are practical problems where Paul had to deal with this legalism situation. People were worried about eating. Now, I've watched evangelicals now. We, you know, we've been in different churches for 30 years or so. Um, and, and, and congregations and the whole evangelical community go through these fads. What was the thing where no mother was considered spiritual unless she nursed her baby? What was that called? That was back in the 70s. We went through that. And there were some women who couldn't nurse their babies. So they were looked upon as some sort of unspiritual people. Now, where in the heck does the Bible say 
that every woman has to nurse her child whether she can medically do it or not. It's not in the scriptures. But we have all this peer pressure set up inside Christian society. We can get into it right in, in our own congregation. We can say, well, so-and-so, boy, I mean, everybody's sending their kid to their homeschooling. Well, that's fine. Some people might not want to homeschool. The Bible doesn't say to homeschool. The Bible gives you educational principles. says parents are in charge. It doesn't specify exactly how. I think homeschooling is great, but I wouldn't say that's for everybody. And if you make it for everybody, it's legalism. It's because we've got a principle now. We've got to cram, ram, and jam it. That's, that's going for the one. On the other hand, we have the many. Well, I don't think we should judge anybody. You know, let him you know, judge. We don't, we don't want to evaluate anything. And so we're free to do anything. It's grace. Grace all the way. Um, so we can go out and raise all kinds of hell and Jesus will forgive it, you know. And so we have that group. And that's the licentious group. So here we go. Back and forth. Back and forth. Doing the same thing in our Christian circles. Still haven't solved the one and the many. So I want you to see that this is all permeating this thing. Now here is where the Trinity comes in. If you look on page um, 4... Halfway down, there's a paragraph that starts out, The Bible-Believing Christian. Now, watch what happens here in these next few sentences. Because one of the things we said from the very beginning is, one of the many may be an interesting question, maybe a very vexing question, maybe a basic question. It may not be solved by any pagan. But before you answer a question, what do you always do? Check to see if the question is phrased right. Remember the story? How many times last week you beat your wife? How do you answer that one without incriminating yourself? So you don't answer questions unless first you run it through a grid to say, wait a minute, is this question itself honoring to Scripture? Am I coming to this thing with a biblical point of view or not? So that's what I'm saying in this paragraph. The Bible-believing Christian, on the other hand, sees the one and the many in creation as derivative of the one and the many, where? In the Creator. What do we say is fundamental to the Christian worldview over against the pagan? Remember we said this again and again. It's our old favorite slide. What is the difference between the Christian and the non-Christian? The Christian thinks in terms of two levels of being. The Creator and the creature. The pagan doesn't have that. He thinks of being. Everything just exists. God exists. Man exists. The nature exists. The rocks exist. All exists. One level of being. The Christian can't do that. We have to come over here. There's two levels of being. So when we ask the question of the one and the many, instead of doing it like Aristotle and Plato, we say, wait a minute. We've got to ask our one many question in terms of the creator and the creature. There's a one and many here. There's a one and many here. Now, here's where the Trinity starts to show up here. This is fundamental. This is what separates biblical Christianity from all other religions. Do you remember back two or three Thursday nights ago, we were going through different heresies. In fact, hold the place here in the notes and go back to that chart. I think it's on page 37. Yeah. 
when the church was arguing about who the person of Jesus Christ was, they ran into all these heresies. And many times the heresies were majority viewpoints. And it wasn't until the Holy Spirit led the church through a series of fierce debates that the cause of these heresies was finally swept out the door. On the right column of that table on page 37, I have underlined certain words. The words I have underlined in the rightmost column refer to the bedrock view of God that was wrong. Behind the heresy, there stood a false, deceptive, wrong, erroneous view of the being of God. It was because of that wrong view of God that these men could not handle the person of Christ. They just could not deal with Jesus Christ correctly. Because in their presuppositional level of their most basic level of thinking, they were screwed up. And that led them to have falsified views of the person of Jesus. And that's why the church went through and threw them out. Now, notice what we've underlined. Solitary monotheism. Now, in terms of what we've been talking about the last 45 minutes, what's the error here? Is this a drifting toward the one or to the many? It's a drifting to the one. Islam does this. Allah is God and God alone, and he doesn't talk. There's no communication. Who does Allah talk to besides himself? Does he have soliloquies forever and ever? Think of this in terms of before creation. Allah's all alone. Can Allah have what we would call a social relationship? Can Allah exercise the attribute of love? Where's the object of Allah's love before the creation? How can you get an attribute of love in a solitary God? Well, here's how you can try to do it. Here's how you can try to do it. Have him create something in order to love. But, once you have to have the God creating something external to himself in order to exercise his principle, you've made God dependent on what? The external creation. So now God is no longer a self-contained God. He is a God dependent upon the universe and the cosmos. This is why the Trinity, folks, is central to our faith. If we abandon the Trinity, we, we go into something like Islam or, or Judaism. Simple as that. And once we do that, we compromise the attributes of God. What we have done then is show, and let's let this flow out a little bit more, with the creator creature, we have God and looking at the Trinity, because the Trinity is, God is one and God is three. There's multiplicity in God. And we want to look at this oneness and this threeness. And we want to be careful about something. The church came in the Chalcedon Creed to say that Jesus Christ is undiminished deity and true humanity united in one person. We want to be careful that we, when we say the Trinity, God is one in essence, you know, He, he is righteous, He is just, and He is three in personality. That's often the way we say it. I just want to urge you to be careful. A Mormon can say the same thing. Now, how are you going to distinguish how a Mormon 
talks about the Trinity and how Orthodox Christian talks about the, 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 the Trinity. A Mormon interprets that to mean there are three persons, all of whom are gods. Plural. So you have the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. They, each one is God, and you have three gods. Not, wait a minute, whoa, that's not the Trinity. So what's missing? How do we state the Trinity? Well, we're going to have a whole lesson on the parts of it. Here's the dilemma. We've got to state the Trinity so God is as much one as he is three. It's like Jesus Christ is as much God as he is man. And that's where the critic, the pagan, thinks is a contradiction. He says something can't be three and can't be one. But look, the, the, the critic is down here inside the creation. He has something called number one and he has something called number three. And you can't have something one and three. Clearly, there's a conflict there. What is he doing? He's saying there's a concept called oneness and there's a concept called threeness. And those... But in order to think clearly, you have to have 100% certainty and purity of your concepts. The pagan, including the Mormon, is out here with his concept of oneness and his concept of threeness. And what is he doing? He's grabbing God and trying to put him into this concept of oneness and threeness and coming up short. What did Paul say in Colossians 2a? According to what? Not according to the elements of this world, not according to the basic concepts, but according to Christ. So what do you do to your basic concepts? You have to have the concept of oneness and threeness derived from the Trinity. In other words, our idea of what oneness and threeness is comes derivatively out of the Trinity itself. So you can't subject the Trinity to a human concept of oneness and threeness. The human idea of oneness and threeness is rooted first in the very character of God. Now, what does this mean? Well, it means that God can speak of himself as I, personal pronoun, singular, I am. What did he say to Moses? He didn't say we are. He said, I am. So God can speak and self-refer to himself with a first person plural. What does he do now in Genesis 1.26? He refers to himself how there? Say, uh, first person plural. First person singular pronoun. First person plural pronoun. And God refers to himself that way. Alternately. One, three. One, three. So you say, wait a minute, I can't grab this. That's right. And what does the Bible say? My ways are not your ways, neither are your thoughts my thoughts. There's an incomprehensibility about God. But what we can say is that in God, the oneness and the threeness are of equal importance. And that's the key. In the Trinity, it's not one over the three, it's not three over the one. Mormonism elevates the three over the one. They have three individual gods running around. So the three, the many, has been exalted over the one. Unitarianism 
Islam elevates the one over the three and they have an Allah that can't love. In the Trinity, God is as equally three as he is one. We do not understand that because our concepts are finite and they're exhausted by trying to grapple with this infinite dimension. So God is one and God is three. And that's the data that we're getting from his revelation. That's, what he, that's when he speaks. That's what we're hearing. We're hearing a first person singular and we're hearing a first person plural pronoun. One day he says we, the next day he says I. So the Trinity then is something that is not at all common in any of the columns on page 37. It is alien to every single one of those beliefs. It is not contained in any way, in any shape, in any form by any of those heresies. So what does this do when somebody in the classroom tells you, well, a trinity was imported from the Greeks? Oh, yeah? Tell me the Greek that he came from. These are all... The, the table on page 37 tells you all the stuff that was being imported in the church, and it certainly wasn't the trinity. The trinity arose not because somebody stole it from some Greek pagan somewhere. The trinity arose... Men were forced into this it's uncomfortable because we have to confess we don't know what we're talking about here, ultimately. God is incomprehensible. We are forced into the doctrine of the Trinity by the Scripture. It is the Scripture that drives us into this position. It cuts us off every time we want solitary monotheism. It cuts us off every time we want a, a tritheism. It never fits. The verses keep, keep colliding with each other. So, we're in, the, we're in here and we, we, we're boxed in with the Scriptures. And we have to confess the Trinity on this basis. But, having said all that, when we're going to get into the details of the Scripture next time, what we want to show today, tonight, is that this shouldn't seem strange after all. Because what does the filing cabinet do? What does the accountant do? What do we do in our normal sentences when we talk every day and when we think? Aren't we balancing the one and the Trinity? And operationally speaking, in spite of our theories, aren't we operating every single day of our lives as though the one and the many are in perfect harmony? We all know that it's true. Every accountant knows that that's true. Every secretary who files knows that is true. And when we think about it, every time we utter a sentence, we know that's true. So we can sit here and fret all we want to about, oh, this is hard stuff and I don't understand it. But it's equally hard to understand a normal sentence. It's just we don't think about thinking. We don't think about our language. It's just all of a sudden when the doctrine of the Trinity appears, all of a sudden we've got a problem. The problem is we had the problem all the time. We had it every time we spoke, every time we filed, every time we did this, every time we did that. It's just that we never thought about it in those terms. So if you want to argue the Trinity is a, has problematical, I can turn it right back to you and say, explain the last sentence you just said. Tell me, what do you mean by a property? Duh. What do we mean by a property? The dog is a German shepherd. What's this property German shepherd? I never saw an ideal German shepherd. Where is one? Show me one. Can't show you one. But you're always talking about German shepherds. Yeah, but I just want to see one. Well, this is an individual example of the class. Yeah, I know, but I want to know what the class is. Tell me empirically and scientifically, what is this class? Well, I can't tell you. 
See, logic isn't, isn't determined empirically. You ever hear this story? Well, I can't believe Jesus. I can't believe that religious stuff. Well, you can't touch it, taste it, measure it, and so on. Can you touch, taste, and measure logic? Have a law of logic? How does it smell like? Did you ever see one? What does it taste like? Not subject to empirical investigation. So here you are telling me all this stuff that you don't believe because there's no empirical evidence and you're using tools that, for which there's no empirical evidence. How silly. So the point that we're trying to get at is this doctrine of Trinity is strange. But it's no stranger than the one and the many in our everyday lives. Later on, I'll show some examples um, of the one and the many. Um, we'll just kind of give you a foretaste of these. Sometimes you hear people use an egg, but that really isn't an illustration of the Trinity. Uh, some theologian laid an egg when that one came. A um, better illustration of the Trinity would be space. How many dimensions does space have? Isn't it interesting that space has three dimensions? Isn't it interesting that time has three dimensions? You begin to see this one and threeness throughout the creation. Now, why isn't there four dimensions or two? Isn't it strange that we always wind up with three? So, these are the kind of hints that God has built into his creation that surrounds us all the time that he is one and three. Now, if you look in the notes for next week, we want to, I want to show you some of the verse references and I urge you to look at these in the light of what we've talked about tonight. In particular, on the bottom of page 5, there the references are to the problem, and it is a problem because notice the use of plural pronouns three out of the four times that I've referenced them occurs in the first book of the Bible. Now, isn't that interesting? Why does that happen? In page 6, we deal with another evidence of the Trinity, and that is the mysterious angel of Jehovah. This is a truly enigmatic figure out of the Bible, the angel of Jehovah. On the one case, he is not Jehovah. Yet on the other case, he is Jehovah. So how can the angel of Jehovah be Jehovah and be distinct from Jehovah? Then we go on to what is called the word of Yahweh. And that's kind of will be a mind-blowing experience because many of you think of that as the written scripture. But the prophets had this technical term that was used to them in the Old Testament. The word of the Lord came to me. And we often think, well, that was just a thought. It was a little more than that. So it's this word of the Lord that comes. And then finally in page 7, I'm going to take you to those passages. You really want to look at those passages, see whether I'm pulling your leg or not. Look at those passages. They are Old Testament passages, centuries before the church, and yet they seem to talk about a trinity, a plurality in Jehovah God, and there's threeness there. Long, long before Paul, John, Matthew, Mark, and Luke. Okay, we're going to work with a biblical text next week, but tonight I wanted to show that it's an introduction to the Trinity. This is a strange doctrine? Yes. Can we comprehend it? No. Is it logically contradictory? No, it isn't if you operate in terms of the creator-creature distinction. And if you want to say it's logically contradictory, then I will challenge your method of logic. Father, we thank you for our time together tonight, and we thank you that 
you have seen fit to reveal what you have. And we know that the things which are revealed belong to us and to our children. But those things which are not revealed, you belong to you and to you alone. And you choose the time, the place, the moment of history to reveal great truths about yourself. And we realize that though we dwell with you for all eternity, it will forever be a learning experience. For out of your infinite character, you could give us a new thing every day of our lives forever and ever and ever. And never run dry because of the depth of who you are and the wonder and the glory of God. We thank you now in the person, through the person of the Lord Jesus Christ. Amen. Okay, um, we'll uh, have Q&A here, and uh, I know I'm starting a little bit early, but then we can get out earlier, so. Um, well, after that stuff, <laughs> um, are there any questions? Topics to open up with? Yeah, Debbie. Well, the church has basically decided that that's the, that's the vocabulary choice. Uh, three in persons, one in essence. And as long as you kind of keep in your mind that you kind of got to be careful. I first became aware of that, the weakness of that formulation, believe it or not, when I was working with some Mormons. Because I, they, they sat there right across the table and said, well, we too believe that too. Uh, well, I knew enough about Mormon theology to know, no, you don't. Not what I'm thinking. But the problem is... It's this business that you know that you don't believe that way, but somehow they're able to twist those words around and make three persons, all of whom are gods, plural. Well, if that's so, then you've made a property, God's essence, and these are individuals, all of whom share that property. In which case, what you've done is you've made the property independent of God. And I think maybe the best way of, of, of thinking about it is this. Let's think of another property. Forget the oneness and threeness for a moment and think of any other attribute of God. Let's just say, um, let's think of His holiness. Um, Plato, in his book, I think it was Timaeus, raised this question. Now keep in mind, Plato raised this question without thinking in terms of the biblical God. So here's the question he raised and see if you can see where it goes. He said, um, is good good because it's a standard to which the gods and men hold or is good good because the gods decree it to be so? Now if you take the answer that it's good is an abstract property 
or quality that God fits, what you have done is you've just made this abstract quality independent of God, and He happens to fit that template. But see, that's a pagan way of thinking. That's saying there's a standard over and above God to which God holds. That's not the biblical view. The biblical view is that holiness is what God is. It's His character. Then, on the other hand, Plato's question was, well, um, is holiness merely what the gods say it is? So God could change tomorrow. You know, be arbitrary then. Well, that's not what the Bible says either because God says, I cannot lie. God is, for sure, He's always the same. His character doesn't change. So, it's not true that the, the, the properties are, are something less than and manipulatable by God. They reflect His character. So, we have to be careful when we say, there is an attribute of God, holiness. What we must be careful of is to realize that when we say that there is holiness, that what we're saying is, there is a property that we can observe that comes from His character. It doesn't come from above God. It doesn't come from outside of God. Nor is God free not to be holy tomorrow because that's His character. His character is to remain forever to be holy. So, what we call properties, like goodness, that derive from holiness, I'm using them synonymously, what we say is light or goodness or holiness, the revolutionary thing in all this is to think of it as totally derivative of God Himself. Holiness is our understanding of the character of God. It is not something over and above God to which God holds to. There's not an abstract thing. God is made up of this, He's made up of this, He's made up of that. And all those properties are together and sort of like... I can see that of my dog or my cat. I can see that of my chair. The chair partakes of squareness. And I have some sort of idea of squareness. The chair isn't communicating squareness to me. The chair fits this higher standard. But when we get to deal over and above now, not at the creature level, but when we go up to the creator level, we can't do that. We have to say that squareness is what God defines it to be. That's the way he thinks. And, and we think that way because he first thought that way. That's why the reformers define the role of man to think God's thoughts after him. I think that's a neat saying. It's one of those careful things you know you kind of have to think about. Notice the way they said it. We are to think God's thoughts after him. Well, what does that mean? It says, first of all, we think and God thinks. Analogous. Why? Because we're made in his image. Why do we think? Not because we're accidental. The, the biochemicals got you know, soup someplace and sort of evolved up and we have this neuroelectrical activity in our brains and that's thinking. We think because that is an activity God designed into us so that we reflect Him and so that when He chose to incarnate Himself in the person of Jesus Christ, he wasn't going into a rock. He wasn't going into a plant. He wasn't going into an animal. He was going into a man. That we, our way we're designed is a finite replica of God Himself. So we think God thinks. But the Reformers were careful. They said, we are to think God's thoughts after Him. What they meant by after is derived and dependent upon Him. 
So, when we talk about moral goodness, cleanness, holiness, we are to think God's thoughts after him. That means he thinks holiness, he thinks light. And our concept of whatever is good is derivative in a finite version of his. And his thinking is good, not because something is in back of him, to which he adheres, not some yardstick up there. It's because he is. That is his character. He's not anything else. So, having said that, with, you could do, do that with all the attributes. God is holy. God is righteous. God is loving. What is love? You know, John says God is love. And, and, and see, that's a dangerous thought, the way it's interpreted. You can have some person out there believes in some eternal goo. And there's this vague concept of love. And God is that concept. No, no, no. God is there and love as a concept exists because it's a re- re- reflection or a projection of his character. It's God's nature to love. And that's what sets up the category of love. His character. Alright, now let's come to the threeness and the oneness. Why we have trouble with that is because God's character has this threeness to it, which means he has a numerical quality. Let's think about that for a moment. Allah does not have a numerical quality, so that number, distinction of numbers, is a, is a relatively superficial and trivial thing. I was just reading today that there's a strong streak in Islam I wasn't aware of. They said wherever Islam has been allowed to take its own course without uh, a religious government, you know, decreeing it, you will find that Islam gravitates to mysticism, where everything gets kind of smeared together. And I was, I was unaware of that. And the reason for that is there's no new, there's, the individual things don't matter anymore. It's like Oriental religion. Everything's a one, just one big blob. They, there's no individual distinctions. Well, God says in His character there are distinctions. There's the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. And they're eternally distinct. So, distinctions count. They're not just one smeary blob, which is Oriental religion. Oriental religion tends to oneness. And you want to see that played out in history? What was the religion in China before communism took over? People are always amazed. Why did communism take over China so fast? Think of what was there before communism. It was Confucianism. It was just a a superficial ethic born out of oriental thinking. They were already set up for totalitarianism. See? So, in God, we have this individuality. The Father is not the Son. The Son is not the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit is not the Son. So, there's this this distinction. And that means, since it's forever, it's eternal distinction, it means that threeness is as much a God as His love is, It's as much of God as His holiness. It's as much of God as His omniscience. It's as much of God as His omnipotence and all the other attributes. The threeness factor is another attribute of God. And our problem is that how do we really state that because we see the Holy Spirit, we see the Father, we see the Son. We see Jesus in the Garden of Gethsemane talking to His Father. See, that was the early problem that the Sibelians had. Because remember what Sibelianism held to the fact that the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit were just masks that the one God put on. Well, the problem was, who was Jesus talking to then in the garden? You know, was he saying, 
father, and then the, he would play this role, son, and then he would play this role, father. Was he, was he doing that? You know, sort of like the play, if they come short of characters, one character has to play two people. That would be Sibelianism. So, that's not the Trinity. In the Trinity, there's genuine exposure. And, and Jesus, in John 17, says something. He says to his Father in that prayer, he says, Father, you loved me before the foundation of the world. See, that tells you that they were in eternal communion before the first atom of the universe existed. And what that tells us is that our God is self-dependent and self-contained and doesn't need the universe. All other gods need the universe. Our God does not. He's totally independent. So, what we're grappling with in the Trinity, I guess what I'm trying to say here is that you're grappling with the same thing we've been grappling with with all the other attributes. It's just that now, all of a sudden, it just hits us because it's so difficult, so clear that we have to deal with this thing now because now we're talking about Jesus Christ, one of the three of the Godhead, walks into history, talks to us, saves us, uh, <laughs> appears to be, in the New Testament, what the angel Jehovah was in the Old Testament. Well, then that means that when we see the angel Jehovah functioning in the Old Testament, we're really seeing the Lord Jesus Christ in his pre-incarnate form doing his thing. Then we have to think, well, that's interesting because in the New Testament, Jesus is very gracious. In the Old Testament, he's slaughtering armies. How do you put that one together? It is in the book of Revelation. Jesus Christ comes back and he fulfills the role that the angel Jehovah did in the Old Testament, except now he's called the Lord Jesus Christ. So you, you see that there's a continuity. He's always the Father, always the Son, always the Holy Spirit. And then we have to be careful in our Christian thinking and why the Trinity is so important is we tend to depersonalize the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit is as much a person as the Father and the Son. What happens is because of the, of the so-called subordination or the order of the Trinity, the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit, the Holy Spirit honors the Father by revealing the Son. And He's always kind of like, again, thinking in terms of a drama, He's more like... Uh, if the Lord Jesus is the actor on the stage and the Father is the playwright, the Holy Spirit is the technician behind the scenes working the lights and all the rest of it. And you never see him. So he, yet he's responsible for pulling it all off. Holy Spirit's responsible for the Scripture, preserving the Scripture. Um, but sometimes there's a tendency that we have of not to honor him as a separate person. So all this is just trying to create a balance at the very core of our theology, the very core of our faith. So we, we've got it, and that's why in subsequent Thursday nights, um, by the way, when is the play, Glenn? So we won't have that Thursday? The 21st? April 1st. Okay, well, on April 1st we won't have a class. So, um, But we're going to go into stating the elements that you need to hold in balance here on the Trinity. We'll, we'll deal with that. But I don't know, Debbie, to get back to your question about personality doesn't work, I don't know what else does. Because the language the church has chosen uh, has been traditionally God is three in persons and one in essence. And I guess it's okay as long as you don't run into somebody that's so totally pagan in their thinking 
that their interpretation of that sentence is that you have three people who happen to share the same attribute and there's no personal unity among them. Well, that, God is one. He can manifest himself as one being and yet he can manifest himself as three. I don't know how that works. But I just know that we, we certainly don't believe in tritheism. Well, the, the, it would be a good example you did it right. What you have to do in these examples is that whatever you, whatever you do with the many, the parts of the egg in this case, the problem I see with the egg illustration is that the yolk and so forth are separate and distinct parts, okay. They satisfy that part of the equation. What they don't satisfy is that the yolk isn't all of the egg. The yellow isn't all the egg. Whereas some of the illustrations that I'm going to mention, time and, and space and matter, uh, actually were mentioned by Dr. Nathan Wood, who for many years taught at Gordon-Conwell in Boston, Massachusetts. And what Wood pointed out was, again, it's not a perfect illustration, but what he said was that you can locate... Every point in space has three, uh, three uh, specifications, X, Y, and Z. Um, you can visualize every, and reach every point with an X. Every point in space has an X dimension to it, or has a Y dimension, or has a Z dimension to it. So every point can be described in terms of X, or Y, or Z. There's no point in space that doesn't have an X. No point in space that doesn't have a Y. No point in space that doesn't have a Z. So that geometrical illustration is better because it, it grabs more of what God is. All of God can be described as Jesus Christ, the Son. All of God can be described as the Holy Spirit. All of God can be described as the Father. Nothing is left out. And just like no point in space would be left out that way. So that's why in the few illustrations we have, we want to try for accuracy. The egg's fine for a kid or something, you know, but it's just, you've got to watch it. That, because we really want to, we want to be aware that the Trinity is so, so much the focal point of attack. Satan has attacked that ever since the church formulated it because he knows that the Trinity is the only thing that holds the whole Christian theology together. You, you mess up here and you set in motion uh, denials of the cross, salvation, all kinds of manifestations of this. Because ultimately, a poor inaccurate and erroneous view of the Trinity demeans the person of Jesus Christ. Because you want to keep in contact, what I try to do in the series, is always think of key events and link your doctrine to those events so that in your mind, someday, if you're, if you're thinking this through, you've got a Bible lesson or you're just trying to work something through spiritually in your own life, you grab hold of a truth and you say to yourself, um, you know, what's the biblical imagery behind this truth? Well, what's the biblical imagery behind the Trinity? Why do we even bother with the Trinity? What are we discussing here? We're not discussing the kings. We're discussing Christ. So, that link, that should set off alarm bells that if I tamper with the Trinity, I'm tampering with Christ. Just like, remember, if I tamper with salvation, judgment salvation in the Old Testament, I'm messing up the Exodus. Or if I mess up the Exodus, I'm messing up my doctrine of judgment salvation. So, that's why it's all interrelated.
Anything else? Yes. Okay, Mike um, I I asked a good question here. Um, there's a distinction between... Uh, let me give two vocabulary words. There's a distinction between the ontological trinity and the, what's called the economic trinity. Now, here's what we mean. We can describe God as He is in and of Himself, try to, based on what we know of His revelation, that what it was like, what life was like before the universe, what he was like, and there's certain things that were true of him before time, before universe was created. Once the universe was created, he has a plan for this universe, and he interacts with it revelationally, and he has a plan. And what you asked is, why did Jesus have to leave for the Holy Spirit to come? It's not that Jesus is saying the Holy Spirit wasn't here before because in His omnipresence the Holy Spirit's always been here. So now we have to ask, well, what is it about the Holy Spirit that's coming? Certainly not His presence. His presence was always here. He's always omnipresent. It was present in the Old Testament. Present at creation. Present at the fall. So, what do we mean? Well, the New Testament says that the Holy Spirit coming coming of the Holy Spirit is connected with Christ in that the Holy Spirit is bringing, is, is working a work on planet Earth that is absolutely new. That was not true in the Old Testament. Could not have happened in the Old Testament. And was contingent upon Jesus Christ getting to the throne. What that work that the Holy Spirit does is actually building the body of Christ, which is a new entity altogether. It's not Israel. It's not the pagans. It's a new entity that he's building. So, when Jesus says, the Holy Spirit, the Comforter, will come, but he won't come until I go to the Father, he's obviously sequencing it. And it has to do with the building of the church, and what is the church, but the body of Christ, and what is the body of Christ, but... Christ's human righteousness is being regenerated and projected into the church. And the Holy Spirit does that. And He didn't do that before. What that entails practically is the whole thing when we get into the church age. But what I want to do in the person of Christ is, that's why you hear me say, and when we get into the life of Christ, the next chapter, you'll hear me say it several times again, and some of you have commented already when you heard me say it the first couple of times, is that you can look upon the human, human Jesus walking around the earth as a test pilot. Now, I have to be careful. This is quite like the egg. <laughs> you have to watch it because no illustration is perfect. I don't mean by that that God's plan of salvation and his, his sanctifying work of the Holy Spirit could have erred, could have screwed up, and Jesus had to test it out and that kind of thing. What I meant is that Jesus was the pioneer. So the first member of the human race ever to be filled with the Spirit in the sense that the church is, with this reproductive, recapitulated nature of Christ, that happened with Jesus. 
And it's His walking around obediently and trustingly that created in history genuine righteousness out of the human race that had never been seen before. Adam could have, theoretically, maybe. But here, for the first time, the angels, Satan, and everyone observed the human masterpiece walking the face of the earth in perfection. And he proved thereby that the human race could do it. He even inherited a title, which we'll get into in another appendix, the Son of God and the Son of Man. Those are technical terms, and they're not used as synonyms. And oftentimes, we want to present the flavor of those terms. The Son of Man doesn't just refer to His humanity, and the Son of God doesn't just refer to His deity. They have a lot more stuff in there. And one of the terms, the Son of Man, is actually the Son of Adam, the Son of Adam. And it means that He justifies the creation of the human race by doing it right. And when He gets done doing it right, He has created and generated what righteousness looks like. The perfect example of human righteousness. Never before observed. And it's that righteousness He carries to the Father's throne. And He dispenses through the Holy Spirit, reproducing that righteousness when we're filled with the Spirit. To a, as much as it can be in fallen beings. But before in the Old Testament, it's not that the Old Testament saints weren't righteous, but there was no prior person that proved the point. Jesus defeated Satan this way. And that's another aspect, the victory of Jesus over Satan. Until Jesus got to the throne, think of the hierarchy now. Man was created lower than the angels. It means Satan's an angel, therefore man's created lower than Satan. On the, on the totem pole of authority and power. What happened when Christ crashed through the heaven of heavens? He ascended to be at the Father's right hand. Now who is at the helm of the universe? For the first time in history, a man, the son of Adam. Now the helm of the universe is clearly in Adam's hands. And Satan has lost down. And the church pictured this as a fish hook. In the ancient church writings, they, they loved the picnic of the fish. We always talk about the fish. Well, they also had another metaphor, the hook. And they said, see, God hooked Satan. In this case, Satan was a fish. And God hooked him. He had a plan, and Satan fell for it. Satan thought he was going to stop God by murdering Jesus Christ. The very act of murdering Jesus Christ was set it up. It's exactly what God wanted him to do, and that's exactly what defeated him. And he's hated that ever since. And he chases and he's resentful. And this is why there's a hatred against all Christians because we are the only touchable parts. He can't touch Jesus. Jesus is the Father's right hand. Why does he, as a roaring lion, seeking whom he may devour? Roaring lion, Peter says, out for prey. He wants to kill, he wants to maim, he wants to destroy because this is his only way to get back at what happened. He knows what's happened. There's been a momentous change in the whole cosmos because of the resurrection and ascension of Jesus Christ. And he knows very well that. He knows the implications of that. So that promotes a fury and an anger that's directed toward us. And that's why Peter wants us to be careful and recognize that these things have all caused this. But the coming of the Holy Spirit is like the coming of Jesus. There was a sequence and there was an order. 
The Father seems like to be emphasized much in the Old Testament, though Jesus and, and the Holy Spirit are there. In the New Testament Gospels, it's the Son who is emphasized. And in the Epistles, it's the Holy Spirit that tends to be emphasized. So there's that progression. And that's the economic trinity. Economic trinity being the individual roles that the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit play in this plan. Okay, well, we're going to uh, end that. If you look at some of those verses, uh, it's pretty amazing. I hope your eyes will be opened to the plurality of God in the Old Testament. And you'll be prepared so when people say that, oh, the Christians invented the Trinity. Well, just read a little bit of the Old Testament, folks. Okay.